Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. We'll wrap up the Albany Patroons season with head coach and general manager Will Brown. The Patroons came up short in their quest to win the Basketball League Championship. Well, that sound can mean only one thing. It's time for the start of the Saratoga horse racing season. The 154th season opens Thursday and runs through Labor Day. And joining me now to preview the meet, and he'll be on every week during the meet, is the award-winning Gazette sports writer, Mike McGadden. Mike, uh, welcome back to the podcast, and how excited are you for the horse racing season at, at Saratoga? Good stuff the fans can expect to see this year. And, uh, you know, Saratoga kind of trots itself out every year and, and with high expectations and always meets them. And um, so that's kind of kind of the feeling right now is we're, we're getting ready to kick off the 154th meet up here. Well, let's, we have a lot of topics to discuss here. Let's start yep. with um, some new twists that the fans will see and uh, that the horsemen enjoy. You may talk about that. Um, well, the, the main thing that everyone's going to notice is what's called the Wilson Chute. It's a section of track that um, kind of dovetails with the first turn, and it allows the uh, New York Racing Association to card races on the dirt main track at a mile, which, I mean, they could do that if they wanted to under the old configuration, but it's really awkward because you're almost into the turn, and it's it's unfair to certain horses. You know, they don't have staggered starts like they do in track and field, so you want every, you want the start to be fair. So this little piece of straightaway that runs parallel to Nelson Avenue will allow them to have a, a, a little bit of a stretch straightaway and and accommodate a one-mile race on the dirt, uh, the dirt main track again, which, um, you know, is kind of an interesting distance. You know, the Breeders' Cup added the dirt mile uh, however many years ago. Um, without this shoot, really, they were, uh, you know, they were kind of confining themselves to seven furlongs to a mile and an eighth, and now you got kind of like that middle distance that, that's going to appeal to some people. Um, they are cutting it off at um, a maximum of 10 in the starting gate. The starting gate has 12 stalls, but you can only have 10 for these dirt races because they don't want it to get too spread out. I mean, there is still like a little bit of probably advantage going into the first turn, and you kind of have to cross over into the main track, you know, so there will be a gap to the left of the horses, you know, the the main track straightaway that goes in front of the clubhouse. Um, but it's kind of a good little thing to add just because it gives Naira more flexibility of what they can card for racing distances on the main track. Um, they, they're right off the bat on opening day Thursday. They'll kick it off. There's a little stakes race that they created called the Wilton, which will um, uh, be for Phillies going um, going out of that new shoot. So fans will get to see that right away. Um, speaking of the fans, the other new thing that is just like up in your face is the paddock bar which is adjacent to the um the saddling ring and you know it's kind of in the enclosure where the shake shack is they just blew it up it used to be a tent with you know a square bar you know underneath it and uh they got rid of that and turned it into a permanent two-story structure now the upper floor 
is climate controlled and it's for renting out for parties and stuff, but the bottom will still be the same, um, you know, layout and everything. It'll just be a lot nicer and it looks like it's bigger and, and, uh, a welcome change for anybody like me who hangs out there on my degenerate Wednesdays when I do get a day off. Um, because it used to be like this canopy tent with just some ceiling fans. You couldn't really see the TVs very well just because of the lighting. And it could get a little hot under there if it, on a really hot day. The fans were kind of ineffective. So uh, we, we certainly welcome uh, uh, this, this new um, pad bar deal that they've done. Uh, one last other new thing I did want to mention is that They've uh, thrown an extra $1.6 million into the Persh um, structure for the meet, and all that money is going to the lower-level races. They do have 77 stakes races worth 22 point whatever million dollars in purses, but this extra $1.6 is going to go into, like, the allowance and claiming levels, which which um, right off the rip, I, they've got a maiden race on Thursday that that's, has a hundred and five thousand dollar purse, and that I mean that's stakes level money that most tracks offer. So to see it in a maiden race that's not even a stakes race, um, the, the theory goes that if the purses are bigger, then the fields will be bigger because the, you'll attract more horses going after that money. And when there's bigger fields, that means it's a better uh, betting prospect. So the betting handles should. Um, sort of uh, run parallel to the increase in the purses. And that's the theory anyway, and generally that's the way it works. Yeah, that's got to be exciting for the uh, owners and the horses there. So, uh, trainer yeah. Chad Brown um, of Mechanical is bringing his usual juggernaut to uh, Saratoga. And, of course, he's the odds-on favorite to win his fifth Saratoga training title in the last seven years. Um, strongest field uh, hand ever with a three-year-old male division. Do uh, you, you think this could be his best ever chance to win the Travers? Yeah, absolutely. He's he's because he, he doesn't just have quality in that division. He's got quantity. He's got three very good ones. I'm not going to belabor the his battalion of stars that he's going to trot out at this meet, but certainly the three year old males are are worthy of some extra mention. Um, one of which, one of whom is he, he's trying to get all three of them to the Travers. We don't know about Jack Christopher yet. Um, who has just been spectacular and I consider to be the best three-year-old in the country, even though he hasn't run in any of the legs of the Triple Crown. He's going to be running in the mile on an eighth Haskell uh, at Monmouth Park in New Jersey um, shortly. And that's going to kind of determine if he's never run longer than a mile, if, you know, a longer distance is something that he might be able to handle, in which case they would definitely want to go to the mile and a quarter Travers. Um, in the meantime, he is definitely sending um zandon who hasn't run since he finished uh third in the kentucky derby but he's definitely pointing for the travers he'll uh which means he'll he'll hit the jim dandy also um and then the one that he's like 50 50 split on he doesn't know what he uh, he's not 100 percent sure whether he's going to go to the haskell or the jim dandy is preakness winner early voting um and it, that might be kind of like a last minute audible based on what horses are going where. Either way, he's going to have to run two of his own horses against each other that that same, you know, early portion of the season. Um, but it's unavoidable at that point. But he told me last week that in a perfect world, he'd love to get all three of these guys uh, into the Travers, which would give him a strong hand. He's 0 for 12, and until Miles D finished third last year, his first 11 didn't even hit the board in the Travers. It's, 
race it, he obviously covets from the bottom of his heart being a Mechanicville native and having grown up here and been on the backstretch and seen the Travers a million times. It's a one race, you know, his, his quote is always in the springtime is, you know, when you ask me in May, yeah, the race I want to win the most is the Kentucky Derby. If you ask me in July, obviously the race I want to win the most is the Travers. So um, he's going to be very strong uh just if, if two of those make it, he's, you know, he's going he's gonna to have a very good chance to win his first one this year. Well, besides the uh, Brown contingent, the Travers is really going to be shaping up to be a very interesting race. We, uh, we saw the Triple Crown, three different winners. Uh, unfortunately, Mo Donegal won't be racing. Uh, so, But the, for the most part, how wide open is the three-year-old male division? Um, it's pretty it's, – it's wide open at the top. Asked Chad this last week, and he said he, he thinks like the good ones have kind of separated themselves a little bit, but there's hard to separate. It's hard to separate them from each other. Um, me personally, I don't consider the Kentucky Derby winner uh, Rich Strike um, to be in that group. Um, I think it was a really fluky win for him. The Derby it was eighty to one there, and he took advantage of a to the knockdown drag him out. Um, stretch duel between Epicenter and Zandon, um, but Rick, but that said, the Rich Strike, the uh, Derby winner, will is pointing toward the Travers, so fans will get to see him. Um, Epicenter is definitely pointing for the Travers, which means he'll, he'll likely be in the Jim Dandy as well because he hasn't run since finishing second in the Preakness to, to Chad's uh, early voting. Um, so Epicenter, I still think could be the best three-year-old in the country. Um, and he hasn't won anything lately. He finished second in the Derby and in the Preakness and had like kind of tough luck both times. So we'll be keeping an eye on him. And then you already mentioned Mo Donegal. Unfortunately, he came up with a physical issue. He's out on the farm for 60 days just being a horse. And then they'll reevaluate to see if it's worth it to get it, you know, to get him back into training um, and maybe run him as a four year old. Um, but the one horse that's out there that is kind of might be. The X factor that's scaring people right now is Charge It out of Todd Pletcher's barn. This is a horse who is lightly raced. He got a late start to his career. He finished an interesting second in the Florida Derby back in April and looked like a potential, like, could jump up and win the Kentucky Derby. He didn't do that. He's still pretty green and immature. He finished 17th in the Derby. But then uh, Pletcher ran him back in the Dwyer at Belmont um, recently, and the horse won by 23 lengths. So if that doesn't catch your eye, I don't know what does. Um, so Charge It will be the other one that's pointing toward the Travers, and which means he'll probably maybe run in the Jim Dandy as well. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know how deep or big the field will be for the Travers, but like the top four or five are going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see them run against each other. Mike McGadden joining us here on the Parting Shots podcast as we get you set for the uh, Saratoga horse racing season. Uh, life is good. Uh, one of those horses. Life that, is good. <laughs> yes, to be top one of the top two contenders for uh, horse of the year, pointing toward the August sixth Whitney. What is it about life is good that makes him so good? Well, I talked to Todd Pletcher yesterday on on Monday about him, and um, every time he breezes. Fletcher comes out with these just raving wow quotes about how good of a work it was. And I, and I asked him, like, you know, why do you react that way? Why do you have that opinion consistently every time this horse works? And he said, because you watch the effort that he's putting out there and then you look at 
at your stopwatch and the time shouldn't match how easily he looked like he was doing. So he goes a lot faster than he looks like he's going because it, it, you know it's effortless and the, the horse has just consistently flawlessly worked been a great workhorse um since he came to Pletcher's barn just for background purposes this is a horse that I thought had a good chance to win the um triple crown for Bob Baffert last year and then two things happened one life is good he had some sort of physical deal going where he didn't make it to the he didn't make it to any of the triple crown races and then subsequently, Baffert got in trouble for Medina Spirit um, testing positive out of the Derby, and then some of his horses got transferred to other trainers. Most prominently, this guy who went to Pletcher's Barn so that he could run in the um, you know the summer and big, the big summer and fall races. You know, the owners Windstar Farm didn't know if Baffert's suspension was going to get overturned, so they didn't want to take any chances. And Life Is Good's comeback race was in the. Alan Jerkins against Jackie's Warrior. We'll get to Jackie's Warrior a little later, but um, and it was just like one of the highlights of the meet. The life is good. First race off the bench and took it out. And Jackie's Warrior, who eventually won the um, you know the Clips Award for the best sprinter in the country, um, they duked it out and and look, it looked like he put away Life is Good in the stretch, and Life is Good actually came back on him at the wire. So it was kind of an interesting race. Um, since then. Uh, Life is Good has won the Kelso and the Breeder Cup Mile last year. Then he won the Pegasus World Cup to kick off this season. He finished fourth in the Dubai World Cup. Um, these races are worth, like, double-digit millions of dollars. And Pletcher um, yeah, said that the, the track was absolutely a, a trench. Um, it was impossible to run on in Dubai. So Life is Good came back and ran in the uh, John Nairud, which is a big grade one stakes down at Belmont Park recently, and crushed that. So um, he's he's set for the Whitney. Um, if there's any distance limitations on him, they'll, you know they'll probably find out. You know, all of the Pegasus is a little on, and the Dubai races are both a little on the longer side. Um, so the, the two top. Horse of the year contenders right now are Life is Good on the East Coast and Flightline on the undefeated Flightline, who did come to New York to uh, blow away the field in the mile on Belmont Stakes Day. But we're not expecting to see him here because he's he's targeting the Pacific Classic. So, he's gonna say, so they're, they're kind of in parallel universes right now, and it'd be great if they hooked up in November in the Breeders' Cup Classic. But for, for the time being, Saratoga fans are going to have to just settle for having one of them, and life is good is really, really going to be a, a tremendous uh, monster freak animal to watch uh, in the Whitney. Dean Wayne Lucas, 87 years old, legendary Hall of Fame trainer, is back after missing a few years because of uh, health concerns over COVID. He's got 16 stalls, and one of them occupied by the best three-year-old filly in, in the country in Secret Oath. Yeah, man, it's great to see Coach back here. Everyone calls him Coach because he, he actually was used to be a high school basketball coach in Indiana back in like his, when he was in his 20s or 30s or whatever it was. Um, the guy's an absolute legend. He's been coming up here for four decades. He's been, been inducted in the Hall of Fame. He's won 14 uh, various legs of the Triple Crown over the years, you know, several derbies, several Preakness, several uh, Belmonts. He's won the Travers three times. He's won everything under the sun, and he's back with just this serious, legit Philly secret oath um, that he loved enough that he ran, he's run her against um, the males twice already this year. She was um, 
third, I think it was, in the Arkansas Derby, a race that he told me this morning, that um, Tuesday morning, that she should have won. She just got a bad trip, and then he said she got a bad trip in the Preakness as well and, and finished fourth there. Um, he had said at the time before the Preakness that um, – this, this is just a good spot for her, but once we get through the Preakness, we're, we are going back to the Philly division, which means coaching Club American Oaks in Alabama at Saratoga. And sure enough, here he is. He, he's supposed to breeze around Friday, um, but he's very, very high on her. And, and again, uh, would be one of the highlights for the fans to, to see this terrific Philly. He, he does also have um, uh, the second choice in the Schuylerville on opening day, which is a Philly named Summer Promise, um, who won by five lengths uh, in her first career start at Churchill Downs. So he's got some babies in his barn, too, that we're going to see in some of the stakes races here for uh, that are restricted to two-year-olds. What other horses uh, do you pr- project as being uh, star power at that Saratoga this year? Well, the one I already mentioned is Jackie's Warrior, who is the champion sprinter male sprinter last year as a three-year-old which is a little unusual and he did that based on as i already mentioned his victory in the Ellen jerkins in the amsterdam and then um even though he finished sixth in the breeders cup sprint his resume was solid enough for him to win the eclipse award so he's back um and as good or better than ever uh, this year he's won the count fleet the churchill downs on derby weekend and the true north on belmont stakes weekend and he's targeting the ag vanderbilt and of course the forgo which are the two big you know older male dirt sprints uh you know the both grade ones at, at saratoga and so i'm really looking forward to seeing him um and then kind of the other division that is interesting is the Philly and Mare um, older dirt horses because um, Ogden Phipps on Belmont Stakes and I gotta say I was at the Belmont this year and it was cool to see Mo Donegal win but the undercard stakes were just ridiculous um, you know between Flightline winning the Matt Mile, Jackie's Warrior winning the True North but the uh, Ogden Phipps was like basically a short field of five but it was the all-stars of that division banging heads against each other um, won by Clarier who's going to run at the meet um, the personal ensign of course is the big race for this division on Travers Day later in the meet um, Malathot who um, won the Alabama for Pletcher last year. She's she's actually going to run in the Shuby, which is earlier in the meet, while pointing toward the personal ensign. Chad's got search uh, search results. Um, I don't know if Bonnie South is going to be in there, but I think Latruska was the champion um, older dirt female last year, Eclipse Award winner. Um, I, I suspect she'll be back for the personal ensign as well. So if we can get these four or five to to kind of um, reprise the Ogden tips. Um, you know, the personal Lenson is going to be a race to really uh, keep an eye on later in the meet. You mentioned uh, Bob Baffert earlier. Uh, he's suspended uh, by the New York uh, Racing Association. Uh, he, so you won't see him at Belmont meet, or I was going to see him at Saratoga. Uh, what is yeah. the impact of that suspension, you think? I'm sorry, what was the question? What, was the, what do you think the impact of the impact, um, well, he won't be at Saratoga, for one thing. Um, his suspension was due to expire on July 1st or 2nd, and um, but the New York Racing Association had assembled a hearing panel 
to review his case and determine like what the suspension should be and then present it to this judge that was gonna you know um you know put the stamp on it and their conclusion was that in, originally he was suspended for 90 days which was going to conclude on that july one or two um at which point he would have been okay to bring horses to saratoga but they and you know with with time served he had like 59 days that he had already been suspended so um but they their judgment was they recommended a, a full one-year suspension which um i don't know the date or, or what that would be but it obviously carries way past the um you know the end of labor day and the end of the saratoga meet so we're not going to see baffert here we may see some of the horses that he formerly trained and you know obviously life is good um you know although that goes back to last year um we may see some of the horses that he transferred to other trainers um show up here in some of the big stakes races i don't know i mean i haven't really dug into that too much but we won't see bob baffert um and uh so as far as impact it you know we might see some of his good horses here um I'm not sure if um, there's two horses, Messier and Tabo, who were derby horses, uh, who were under other trainers. I'm not sure what their status is. I mean, if one or either one of them shows up for the Travers somehow under another trainer's name, that would just add to the, the mix of the Travers and, and kind of enhance it a little bit more. Um, but other than that, you know, Baffert's not going to be here, so... Um, uh, which means none of his horses that he you know, he has been reinstated at other tracks right now. So he is running at places like Los Alamitos. Um, he can run out there, but he can't run here. Yeah. Well, Mike, we're well, looking forward to another season talking horse racing at Saratoga. You can follow Mike's coverage on Twitter at Mike underscore McGann. Mike, appreciate a few minutes, and uh, good luck and have some fun. All right, thanks, Ken. Cash some tickets out there, you guys. All right. That's Mike McGadden of Albany Patroons, head coach and general manager Will Brown, joins me next here on the Parting Shots Podcast. is your premier source of horse racing news and events from the daily newspaper of the Saratoga Race Course, The Daily Gazette. At the Track features racing tips, feature stories, picks by Naira racing analyst Anthony Stabile and Andy Serling, and direct links to Naira bets. Check out At the Track at www.dailygazette.com slash at the track. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Chad Arnold. You're listening to the Pardon Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schatz. Welcome back to the podcast. The Albany Patroons just missed out on winning the basketball league title last week when they lost to Shreveport in overtime in the deciding game of the finals. But that does not deter from the great season they had. And here to talk about that is the head coach and general manager of the Patroons, Will Brown. Will Appreciate a few minutes. I know you're down in uh, Myrtle Beach enjoying a little uh, fishing. Uh, how are the fish uh, biting down there? Not biting so much, at least not for me anyway. But my uh, my younger son, our 12-year-old, caught a couple of fish, so he's happy. And, you know, it's just nice to have some sunshine, get away for a few days, and spend some time with the family. That's good. I mean, yeah, look back on the 
tough way to end, lose, to end the season, losing at home in the championship game, but how proud of you of how the, what this team accomplished this year? Really proud. I mean, it was it was a great season. Uh, the Patroons had not completed a season uh, since 2019. Most of that related to COVID. And at that time in 2019, there were nine teams, I believe, in the TBL. Now there's 44 teams in the TBL and growing. So I think there was a great unknown, uh, myself included. I didn't know really what I was getting myself into, uh, what the league was really all about the professional game, different type of game, and then, you know, the community. Uh, it's been a few years since uh, the community has been fresh in the Patroon's mind, and in all honesty, really going back to the CBA days is when the community really embraced the Patroon. So, you know, I think this year was really about educating the community and the fan base that we're back. We have a good product in the armory, high-level basketball, come out and see us. And for me, just, uh, you know, putting a team together that could compete at a high level, represent the organization the right way, and again, uh, be a product that the fans would enjoy coming out to see. What was it like? I mean, obviously, you, as a former coach at UAlbany uh, in the recruiting process, I think we talked about this earlier uh, before the season. What did you learn about the whole process of trying to sign players? I mean, was it tougher to do that as opposed to recruiting uh, players for college? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. You know, recruiting the professional players, you're dealing with – agents nonstop and the more money the player makes the more money the agent makes at the college level you're recruiting high school kids high school coaches families aau coaches aunts uncles trainers at the professional level uh my experience so far it's been the player and the agent and in certain situations, if I had a pre-existing relationship with a college coach, I could use that, you know, to push us uh, over the top or to get us over the hump, per se. So, you know, I think they both have their challenges. At the professional level, though, there's less people involved, and really it comes down to what can the organization offer from, you know, a facility standpoint, a strength and conditioning standpoint, uh, an experienced coaching staff, and of course, salary is important, and then what are you going to do to help my clients take that next step, get more exposure, and help create more opportunities so when they're looking for their next job, the bigger job, the better job, how is the Patroons going to be a benefit for the player? So it's been interesting. It's been a good learning experience. Uh, I think that the players that came through our organization this past season really enjoyed the experience. It helps when you have your own facility so players can get in the gym whenever they want. The experienced coaching staff, that was really important to me. For me to take the job, I wanted to have Don Bassett on board and Brian Beery on board. 
going back to when I first graduated college, Brian gave me my first opportunity to work for him and with him at the College of St. Rose. I shared an office with Donnie Bassett those three years, and those were some of the most rewarding years of my coaching experience and coaching career. So to get the old gang back together and then adding Mark Ribsick and Julie McBride, the coaching staff really made it special for me and also for the players. How, how different was it coaching pros as opposed to college? Co- coaching pros, uh, you know, it, it was positive for me. Uh, what you have to remember is it, it's different. Uh, these guys, this is their livelihood. Uh, they're making a living playing professional basketball when you have 12 guys on your roster you can't play 12 guys and if you are playing 12 guys then you're either winning big or losing big on a consistent basis so you feel really bad for the guys that aren't playing but you have to continue to coach them work the player development piece uh make them feel special but with that being said they're not happy because As much as the group wants to have team success, individual success is very important to them at the professional level because that's what's going to get them their next job. So we told the players, hey, trust the process, uh, trust the staff, embrace what we're asking you to do. Winning, strong emphasis on winning because the winning is going to help get you exposure just as much as the individual stats. And if you're averaging 20 a game on a bad team, but averaging 12 on a successful team, a winning team, most organizations at the professional level are going to want that 12-point-per-game guy because they've won, they understand the team mentality, and they still had some individual success. You know, at the college level, When you get an 18-year-old kid, you've got four years to help them grow and develop on and off the court, grow as a person, grow academically, grow basketball-wise. And those guys, it's really not until their junior, senior year, they're starting to figure out what they want to do after college. A lot of guys would like the opportunity to play professional basketball. Some want to go to grad school. Some want to enter the real world. So each player is a little bit different. At the professional level, the mindset, it's tunnel vision. Pro basketball, bigger job, better job, more money, support me, and eventually support my family. Um, you know, and I think uh, you have to be a little more patient, flexible, and probably you let the professionals uh, get away with a few more things than you would uh, the college student. Just some of the interaction and the back and forth banter um, and the dialogue's a little bit different. Uh, and I say that with a smile on my face. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself as a pro coach as opposed to a college coach? This year really helped me. I've always said, uh, coaching at the college level, the one thing that I really had to get better at and work on is my patience level. I had to be more patient. Uh, I'm impatient professionally, impatient 
personally. Um, I'm not proud of the trait. Uh, it's just who I am. I think the professional level for sure has helped me become more patient. Uh, I've taken more deep breaths. I've relaxed more. And uh, I think the player-coach uh, dynamic uh, from coaching in college to coaching at the professional level changed a little bit, changed uh, for the better. And I think it's directly related you know, to my, my patience level, to be honest with you. When you're coaching in college, there's so many more practices than games and you know it's hey embrace practice embrace practice at the professional level guys don't like to practice uh they don't mind it until you get up until you get to that first game and then once you start playing games you know what i've learned is you have to really some days just need to be player development days i think you have to be very careful um how much intense practicing you do uh, when you get to the mid to late part of the season a lot of it is fine-tuning tweaking shorter high intensity like for it we, we did an awful lot of player development stuff with our players did more video work uh, I'm a big preparation guy was always that way uh, at the college level but I think guys at the professional level especially when you zone in on them individually uh, I think they really enjoy that so what we tried to do is break the monotony and be a little more creative and I learned quickly that the guys really do enjoy the player development piece. And they were really good with scouting. Uh, they really were because they knew that this was going to help us win. It was going to help the player succeed individually, the group collectively you just couldn't be so regimented i think it's a little bit easier to be regimented you know at the at the college level i think at the professional level you know it's more about playing tricks with the guys in regards to hey we are getting better as a team because you're getting better individually uh we did a lot of conceptual work with our players not necessarily five versus five you know a lot of two versus zero three versus zero four versus zero drill breakdown work uh and, and they seem to really enjoy that type of stuff how much did the fans embrace this team? And obviously, you know, they have a lot of the old-time fans remember the CBA Patroons and how good they were over the over the years. I mean, how did the, this fan base embrace this team? Yeah, the fans were great. The community was awesome. I think it was a gradual, slow, but steady process because, again, there were so many people. We'd be mid-season, and I'd have people telling me, oh, I didn't even know the, your season had started yet, or I didn't know the Patroons were playing again. The best thing about this season is now the community knows the Patroons are back. We're playing. And if you came to a game, especially during the playoffs, the Armory is an awesome venue for a basketball game. Even if it's half full, it's loud, it's difficult for our opponents. We have all of those courtside seats, which were full for all of our playoff games. 
awesome atmosphere. So I think what we did is we created and built momentum heading into next season. Uh, people know that the Patroons are back. We're playing. We have a quality product. And a big part of that, Ken, were people like you, uh, the media professionals, really embracing what we're doing, working with us, giving us that exposure and that platform. And it really catapulted us forward, especially uh, during the playoff run. Uh, you know, just the, the game three, the deciding, you know, game against Shreveport, uh, you know, the fans were, were incredible. And, and I know our players really appreciate it. We had not, we didn't lose a game at home all year until the, the last the deciding game, game three, and, and how we lost it uh, is still frustrating. Uh, you know, I'm here on vacation, and at least, you know, two or three times uh, a day, you know, it goes through my head, and you know, I've watched the final play, the final two plays, I should say, of regulation multiple times, the one where we stole the ball on the side out of bounds with eight seconds left, and our guy had a semi-breakaway in transition, and then the side out of bounds with three seconds left where the point guard for Shreveport hit the turnaround 20-footer uh, at the buzzer to send the game into overtime. So uh, just to see all those people standing uh, and cheering, uh, you know, that's what it's that's what it's all about. You sort of went old school with the uh, noise there with the pots and pans. I mean, obviously, this day and age, you have so much noise in the building with loud music, but fans brought the pots and pans there late in the playoffs. So how did that come about? Pots, pans, buckets. Uh, you know, our... Um you know, our president and vice president, you know, Mike Quartz and Rocco Ricuti came up with an idea of what can we do that's maybe a little bit different to create some noise, make it more difficult for our opponent, maybe something that fans would embrace. And they asked me about it. I shrugged my shoulders and said, you know, why not? And after the first game that we did it, I think I had a headache for about 24 hours, but it was a good headache. And, you know, it kind of became the thing throughout the playoffs at our home games. I mean, we went out to Kokomo, Indiana, and they had the cowbells, you know, so Albany created the pots and pans. I mean, they had, you know, frying pans and, you know, you name it, uh, the fans brought it, and they brought the drumsticks or the spoons, and so it, it really did create noise that I think was bothersome for our opponents, and, you know, again, something different, something that the fans really enjoyed, they ran with it, and it kind of became our thing late in the year. I know it's probably too soon to ask, but uh, what are you looking forward to, to uh, next season? Well, I, I really want to digest uh, this season. Um, I promised myself that I wouldn't do any work uh, while I was in Myrtle Beach. Uh, you know, I think the only time I've really thought much about the season, a couple of days that I've been in Myrtle Beach, has been just the flashbacks going through my head about those last two 
possessions uh, of the game and how close we were, uh, I'm sorry, in regulation, how close we were to winning the championship and we were we were that close and you know we got into overtime and it was almost like somebody put a pin in the balloon and uh you know we just ran out of gas but what i'm gonna do when i get back in a couple of days is break out the legal pad and just start writing you know things that uh i thought went well from a basketball standpoint uh things that i'd like to see altered or changed from a basketball standpoint, whether it's personnel, some things we did as a coaching staff, whether it was training camp, some roster moves we made, and then from an organizational standpoint, uh, what could we have done better? And there's a bunch of things that I think we could have done better from a basketball side of things and from an organization side of things. The biggest thing is there's a lot of competition, Ken, and I firmly believe this and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. There's a lot going on in the area. You know, you've got high school sports, college sports, you've got the, the Empire, the Valley Cats, the, the, the Pro Lacrosse, the Dutchman. So how do we separate ourselves? You know, it's easy to say, well, if they like basketball, they'll come. Well, my thing is we need to be as family friendly as possible. Get people in the seats. That starts with pricing. Um, we've got to make it affordable because we want people to be able to come back. you got to get people in the doors and let them experience it. And there's a there's several ways you can make money once they get in the doors, concessions, merchandise. Because the people that come to the games, they're going to be our best salespeople. And as a coaching staff, we talked about this all the, all the time. You know, I had coached for a long time at Albany. I was coaching at the junior college level. Got my, my start as an assistant at the College of St. Rose. Brian Beery with all of his experience at the College of St. Rose. Donnie Bassett coaching at the high school level in the area, coaching at St. Rose. He was with me at Albany. He was with the Patroons with George Carl. You know, Julie McBride playing at Syracuse, playing professionally the training she's doing there. Mark Ripsick, uh, you know, his coach at the Division One level is an assistant. Division Two is an assistant. Division Two is a head coach. Junior College is a head coach. So we've been in all, t we've been with all different types of programs in different venues. So we have a strong understanding as to what puts people in the seats. And we're going to, like I said, brainstorm and put all that stuff down uh, on paper. And we want the Patroons to be uh, a place that, yes, basketball fans and basketball enthusiasts want to be, but that families can come and young kids can get to know our players and experience our players and our coaching staff and where they want to come back. We had a, a young kid after every game, especially throughout the playoffs, he would track me down and we would talk a little bit after the game. And, you know, he had pots, pans, uh, took pictures with all of our players. And that's what it's, that's what it's all about. Uh, I'm not concerned with comparing ourselves with the rest of the TBL, that's the wrong mindset. You know, how do we make the Patroons the, uh, the destination for players that compete in the TBL? How do we make the Patroons organization and the Armory, especially the place to be during
during the protrude season. So it's about worrying about us and making us better and not comparing ourselves to other teams in the TBL. Well, Will, I appreciate a few minutes, especially the fact you're taking some time off and uh, to talk about the Patroons. Uh, congratulations on a great season, and I know you'll come back stronger than ever, and uh, you'll come back and win that championship next year. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for all the coverage throughout the season, and if I can ever help for my end or if you ever need a guest, you know how to get a hold of me. Sounds good, Will. I appreciate it. Thanks. You got it. Enjoy your summer. Yeah, you too. That's Will Brown. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hey, Saratoga Horse Racing fans. You have a chance to win a $50 gift card to a Daily Gazette advertiser by playing the Gazette Saratoga Pick 7. Here's what you do. Pick your horses to score the most points in the first seven races at Saratoga Racecourse and win the $50 gift card. To play, go to www.dailygazette.com slash pick seven and make your picks 15 minutes before post time the day of the race. The Saratoga Pick 7 contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not affiliated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi. I'm Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette, and you're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 18 winner in the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest was Randy Haydner of Schenectady. Randy wins a $50 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Randy. The VIP winner was Jessica Woodruff of Dave's Gourmet Burgers. I'll announce the winner of the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest, and that winner's name will appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. Keep checking out DailyGazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates and news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Mike McAdam and Will Brown for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers, I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.